Hi, I'm Anita Johnson, and it's time to put your money where your media is. Please support Making Contact with a donation at radioproject.org. Now, through December 31st, your donation will be doubled by Newsmatch. If you sign up for a new monthly donation, Newsmatch will double it for the whole year. Your $10 a month could instantly become $240 to help produce people-powered radio. Thank you, and here's the show. Our system is in too many ways broken. The way we see the world shapes the way that we treat it. This is Making Contact. I'm Lucy Kang, and you're listening to Making Contact. Before we start today's show, I wanted to take a quick moment to introduce myself. I'm a new producer who's joining the team, so you'll be hearing more of my voice on upcoming episodes. I'm thrilled to be part of this show, and I can tell you we have some really great stories coming up. And now, back to the show. Because abortion rights were handed over to the states, this means that our local governor, legislative, and judicial races will directly determine the future of abortion access across the country. Our friends from the podcast, The Response, bring us this piece about abortion access after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade. We're in the marathon now. We are not in the sprint anymore, right? This is going to be the lay of the land for a long time. We learn how abortion funds, mobile clinics, and other mutual aid efforts are helping people access this life-saving care. We just take that as normal, like the policing of our bodies, the policing of our lives. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up. After the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June, the issue of abortion moved to the forefront of the 2022 midterm elections. We had to cut this show before the official results were announced, but we wanted to discuss the wider context around how abortion access has impacted the lead up to the midterms and how the results could further restrict access. So we have here with us Alexandra Martinez, senior news reporter at PRISM, an independent nonprofit newsroom led by journalists of color. She's covered the issue extensively. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be here, especially to be discussing something so important. So to start off, can you recap for us how abortion as an issue has shown up in the 2022 midterms? Definitely. So the issue of abortion access definitely raised the stakes in this year's midterm elections. So ever since June, when Roe versus Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court's decision on Dobbs, for the first time in at least 50 years, states became in full control of abortion rights. Once Roe was overturned, we saw so many states ban abortions either nearly or completely and some of those bans are being litigated at the state Supreme Court level. So just to paint a picture of the stakes, abortion is completely banned in 12 states, and other states are enforcing six-week abortion bans. And doctors who violate these bans could face penalties as severe as life in prison. Meanwhile, 66 abortion clinics have closed or stopped providing abortion services. So the stakes are high. Um, Meanwhile, because abortion rights were handed over to the states, 
This means that our local governor, legislative and judicial races will directly determine the future of abortion access across the country, even in states where abortion is and will likely remain legal. To move on, can you describe just how widely abortion as an issue also showed up in different ballot initiatives? So we first saw um, abortion come up in ballot initiatives in the summer, in August during uh, the Kansas primary. That was a very successful example of um, abortion rights being defended when over 500,000 voters came out to vote down a constitutional amendment that would have banned abortion in the state of Kansas. So similar to Kansas, we also are seeing in Kentucky, there was an abortion ban on the ballot, which is interesting because Kentucky already has an abortion ban that has gone into effect and is currently being reviewed by the state Supreme Court. So essentially voters in Kentucky were being asked to decide whether or not the state constitution could be interpreted to protect abortion rights, which would have circumvented the state Supreme Court's decision in the case. Aside from Kentucky, Montana also has a direct abortion initiative, which is unfortunately a a very vaguely worded and redundant initiative that essentially asks voters to decide whether or not doctors should be penalized who do not act to preserve the lives of quote-unquote born-alive infants, including fetuses extracted during an attempted abortion. Besides those two ballot initiatives, we saw California, Michigan, and Vermont directly ask their constituents to decide whether or not to codify abortion rights into law and into their state constitution. Do you have a sense of how the majority of American voters feel about abortion access, whether they tend to support or oppose it? Right. So surveys have said many times that about six in 10 Americans say abortion should be legal in all or most cases. That's a 61% majority of United States adults saying abortion should be legal in all or most cases, while 37% think abortion should be illegal in all or most cases. So even across um, the political spectrum, people are not happy with all out abortion bans and see abortion for what it is a, a healthcare necessity. I know we could speak on this topic for much, much longer, but unfortunately, that's all the time that we have right now. Um, I want to thank you again, Alexandra, for being on the show. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. I really appreciated it. That was Alexandra Martinez, senior news reporter at PRISM, an independent nonprofit newsroom led by journalists of color. For the rest of the show, we'll be hearing from people working to preserve access to abortions, especially in the South. And to start us off, here's Lori Bertram Roberts, executive director and co-founder of the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund. This piece comes to us from the podcast, The Response, hosted by Tom Llewellyn. Hi, I am a reproductive justice activist in Jackson, Mississippi, and I was born in Duluth, Minnesota. I was raised in a very religious household 
And when I say very religious, I really mean cult. I was raised uh, independent fundamentalist Baptist. My mom's white. My dad's black. You know, I'm a biracial black person. My idea is black. My mom and I have always been poor. My mom's a single mom. You know, I grew up on welfare. Like, I like to add the context that, like, literally my whole childhood, everything good I remember about my childhood was publicly funded. Like, I don't know how to explain it any other way, but, like, I loved going to the library every week, publicly funded. All the parks I went to, publicly funded. The city bus, publicly funded, right? So, like, my view of the world as far as, like, what taxes can do and why taxes are amazing and why mutual aid is amazing and all those kinds of things is kind of through the lens of my childhood and the things that my mom, despite being roped into this religious nonsense by my grandparents, would always be at like the local co-op volunteering her time to make sure she could get fresh fruit. But yeah, so there was all of that. And then life happened to me, right? I was no longer a goody Christian girl. I got pregnant at 16 and like many fallen Christians, I did what my indoctrination told me to do. I got married at 16 and at 17, I almost died in a Catholic hospital that wouldn't give me an abortion when I was having a miscarriage because there was a heartbeat, a heartbeat, quote unquote, in my embryo. And so they sent me home and I almost hemorrhaged to death. And so that kind of started my unraveling of my beliefs that I had been taught. And then just life kept happening. You know, I needed an abortion. I couldn't afford one. And I was a turnaway patient. I needed an abortion another time. And Planned Parenthood gave me fantastic care. And actually, I ended up not getting an abortion because I had a miscarriage. But like the care they gave me in telling me that I was going to have a miscarriage was amazing. They gave me back my money. They like made sure I got follow up care with my Medicaid provider. And the funniest thing about that is that I was raised being told that Planned Parenthood would give you a abortion even if you weren't pregnant. I just want you to think on that for a second. That Planned Parenthood was so greedy that if you went in there and you weren't even pregnant, they would give you an abortion. So imagine me laying there and they give me this ultrasound and they say, you're already starting the process of having a miscarriage. Here's your $450 back. Have a nice day and go follow up with your Medicaid provider. So it was just like that kind of lifted the rest of the veil for me. And then I just had a lot of other stuff like I was denied an IUD when I wanted one. I couldn't get my tubes tied because I had there were only Catholic providers where I lived. I just had a lot of reproductive injustice, right? And I just think that for a lot of us, especially as Black women or Black femmes, we just take that as normal, like the policing of our bodies, the policing of our lives. Lori's experience isn't just an isolated story, unique to a handful of individuals. It's a story that could be told in a million different ways by a million different people. A story about reproductive justice, or more accurately, a lack thereof. Abortion access has always been limited here in the United States. But since Roe v. Wade was overturned in June of this year, and the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization decision held that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion, things have gotten dramatically worse. Especially in parts of the U.S. like the Deep South, where Lori lives. In the face of trigger laws banning and criminalizing abortion in many states, as well as state-sanctioned harassment and targeted campaigns against people seeking abortions, the centuries-old movement for reproductive rights and justice has only grown and strengthened. The movement takes many forms. 
we're going to explore the people and organizations working on the front lines of the abortion access crisis. Those grassroots, mutual aid, solidaristic efforts to help people in the places where abortion has been outlawed and criminalized get access to the reproductive services they need. We'll start in the Deep South. Who are we? We are a ragtag group of, <laughs> of um, dedicated volunteers, hopefully to get sustainably paid this year. We are a reproductive justice organization that funds abortions and does practical support for abortion. Always have. The Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund, which Lori founded in 2013, offers financial assistance and practical support to people seeking abortions, as well as free emergency contraception and community-based comprehensive sex education. We give away condoms and lube and dental dams, and we do instructions on natural family planning and cycle beads, and we give away today's sponges. I mean, like, basically, if it's a legal contraceptive, like, barrier method that we can distribute, we got you. (laughs) Like, (laughs) we we got you and we can teach you about it. We train peer-to-peer sex educators. We do sex ed in the community. We have a free pantry and a little free library on our main property, the Fun Shack. We have a lending library. We have a bunch of other stuff that we can lend out to people. Everything from, like, cake pans for birthday parties to mixers, to like cotton candy machines for other community groups. So you don't have to pay like, to rent those kinds of things. For things So like we've got a cotton candy machine and a popcorn machine and a slushy machine that people can borrow. I know this is like a long list of stuff, but we like, we have a, all, we do all kinds of stuff. We have a diaper closet and a period supply closet, including stuff for people who have incontinence issues and adult diapers. We deliver groceries to folks. We have helped with the ice raids that happened. We've helped bail people out, especially people who have been criminalized for their pregnancy outcomes. I think that's mostly it. <laughs> I think I think I covered most of it. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, we, we help people with temporary housing. We help people pay their property taxes so they don't lose their house. All kinds of stuff. You've been listening to Abortion Access and Reproductive Justice in a Post-Roe Landscape from the podcast The Response. This is Making Contact. Visit us online at radioproject.org for more information or to leave us a note. And now, back to the show. Mississippi has the highest poverty rate of any state in the U.S. Nearly 20% of Mississippians live in poverty. In fact, the Deep South as a whole is the most impoverished region in the U.S., with the surrounding states of Louisiana, Alabama, and Tennessee all ranking in the top 10. States in this region have also passed some of the most criminalizing abortion legislation since Dobbs. But it's not like they were reproductive justice beacons before, either. Things already have been an issue before the Dobbs decision, because before Dobbs, there were still people that could not access abortion. It was it was not an affordable thing. It was not something that people could tangibly do in Alabama. We're in Birmingham, very populated. There's not a clinic here in Birmingham that performs abortions. Janice Fountain is the executive director of Yellowhammer Fund, based in Birmingham, Alabama. Yellowhammer Fund is a reproductive justice organization. 
pre-Roe v. Wade following, we were doing a lot of abortion funding, maybe about 350 clients a month as far as funding. We're also funding the practical support around abortion as well, like travel, child care, and doing a lot of the preventative measures as well, emergency contraceptives, condoms, safe sex kits. And we were doing this based out of Birmingham now. We were serving like Mississippi, Alabama, the Florida Panhandle, and a lot of the deep south places that folks don't usually get reached at. Before the Dobbs decision, the main barrier to abortion access throughout many parts of the country, but particularly in regions like the Deep South, were what's known as trap laws, or targeted restrictions on abortion providers. These laws imposed costly, severe, and medically unnecessary requirements on abortion providers and women's health centers. Things like location requirements, unreasonable reporting demands, or even 24- or 48-hour wait periods to receive care. These laws were pushed by anti-abortion politicians under the guise of women's health, but their real aim was to make it more difficult for people to access abortions. In Alabama, they had to make sure you're okay to make your own decisions and wait 24 hours after a counseling appointment to come back. And that's not feasible for a lot of families, especially low-income, to drive an hour, come back, do it again, get child care both days, pay for gas both days, where a procedure is already very unaffordable. Or even just if you're disabled, like how do you get to those appointments multiple times? If you're undocumented, how do you get an appointment at all? Like it was very inaccessible. So when people were relying on legality, it was very disappointing because a lot of folks that we were serving, it's not a feasible thing. Like an abortion wasn't something they could even fathom doing under the circumstances they're already in. You know, it's like, how do you get $600 for a procedure? And now, of course, it's even worse in that The people that would have accessed abortion at least can't. And when you look at the numbers and looking at Alabama and how many people are dying in childbirth in Alabama, and like, especially Black women being three times that amount of white women, you like, it doesn't align. Like, there's no amount of work being done so that people don't die in childbirth. There's not enough work being done to get Alabama out of the top five most food and secure states. We are like the second poorest state, second to only Mississippi. What should people do? Yeah, so I always called it an abortion desert. Here's Lori Roberts again. With like a few oasis points. So like Atlanta was like an abortion oasis, right? Tuscaloosa you know, was like a little abortion oasis. Jackson, Baton Rouge, New Orleans, they're all gone now. All of them. There's nothing. It's obliterated. According to Bloomberg, it's been estimated that a quarter of the country's abortion clinics have closed since Roe was overturned. Statistics show that there are roughly 33 million women of childbearing age living in states with existing or expected abortion bans. And now, some will have to travel hundreds or even thousands of miles to access an abortion. But traveling was already a huge barrier even before Roe was overturned. 
This is why the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund, along with many other groups, have been helping people access abortions by not only providing funds to assist with transportation, but in some cases, even providing the transportation itself. They mostly use their own cars or rentals, but a few years ago, the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund acquired what Lori calls the Abobo Bus, a 12-seat van that's large enough for people to lie down in. It's worked pretty well for them, but since they got it for cheap, the Abobo Bus does tend to break down. It was actually out of commission when we spoke with Lori. Sad face. Let's hope it can be fixed. I don't even know. But generally, you know, someone will call and we will troubleshoot all the ways to get them to an appointment. Because giving them a ride is not the first one that we go with. Giving someone a ride is basically kind of like the last option that we go with because it's it's logistically the hardest thing for us to do. So we will generally troubleshoot with, do they have someone who can take them? Is there a way for us to fly them the place that they need to go, depending on how far it is? What are the alternative ways for us to get them there? Or if they just call and say that the issue is they need a ride or they're referred to us for a ride, then we immediately start figuring out who can drive them. We usually send drivers in two people pairs for a couple reasons. One, fatigue, but also just safety and obvious reasons, right? And also, we usually have one person that's a support person at all times for the the person who's getting their abortion, because we have abortion doulas. Yeah, so that gets put in motion, and then the abortion doula is usually that person's contact person from that time on. We get them their appointment, figure out when we're going to take them for their first appointment, get them a schedule on when we're going to pick them up, where we're going to pick them up, if we need to pick them up away from their house. Do we need a code name? Do we need, I mean, like some of this stuff sounds like some real like James Bond stealthy stuff, but honestly, for people who are in DV relationships, sometimes we cannot pick them up near their house. Or if we do, we need to pick them up in a, we can't pick them up in our accessible vehicle. We need to pick them up in a car or we need to, it can't be like our male driver that drives a lot of times. We have to send like our little suburban white lady who looks like somebody's Girl Scout cookie mom. Like, you know what I mean? Like we have certain people that we send for certain stuff. So that's our whole thing. I know I'm giving you a really long answer, but there's a reason. Um, So there's all of those things to troubleshoot. And then we send the team out, they pick them up. We drive them there. Usually if it's only a 24 hour waiting period, the appointments are booked back to back. So then you've already booked the lodging for the support people and the person that's going. And then, you know, everybody's got their budget for spending their food and all of that. And then that's pretty much it. The support person goes with them for their appointment. There's usually someone up with a person. It used to be if we had someone who was going out of state. And even now, usually if we're driving with someone out of state, they're a little bit later along. Because a lot of times our earlier people don't need a lot, a lot of support like that. So... A lot of times we're staying up with them to make sure they take their meds on time or they're not nauseous or they're, you know, that they're okay. And then we make sure that they're good to go when they're all done with their, however long their procedure time is, if it's a day, just the next day, or if it's a two day procedure and then back on the road again, make sure they get home, follow up with them for the next couple days, follow up with them in another couple weeks. And then that's it. Dr. Julie Amen is a family medicine physician and the medical director for Just the Pill, 
a nonprofit providing telemedicine and both in-person and by mail medication abortion and contraception. They operate mostly in Colorado, Minnesota, Montana, and Wyoming. The mobile clinic idea was our executive directors back in 2020 when we started, but we were thankfully able to mail really early uh, during the pandemic and so pivoted pretty quickly. But since, let's see, September of 2021, when Texas passed their SB8 restrictions, that's when the mobile clinics kind of came back to fruition. We were trying to figure out at Just the Pill how we could serve Texans and other people traveling from more restricted advanced states. So the idea was we had two mobile clinics built out. One has, you know, medication lockers in the back for pickup. And the other one is just kind of a mobile exam room, essentially. And so that was started a couple of months ago. We've seen about 60 patients for medication abortion picked up. And the reason we're able to do that in Colorado specifically is because they don't have a 24-hour waiting period like we did in Minnesota to start with. So patients can travel from whatever state they're coming from have their telehealth visit with a clinician and then be able to meet the mobile clinic and pick up their medications. And then hopefully the same for our procedural units. Um, they'll be able to have all of their, as much of their visit done via telehealth to save time and resources for patients and then come to the clinic and have their procedure and be able to go. For now, Just the Pills mobile units are only delivering medication abortion, but they're planning to provide procedural abortions by the end of this year. However, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in order for that part of the program to run smoothly and safely. Just over the last five to 10 years, it feels like the violence towards abortion providers and clinics has just kind of escalated. And I feel like after the DOPS decision, it's just been the same for that. So when we were looking at having the mobile clinics built, we knew that we would be very concerned about where they were parked and had to have you know partners on the ground that would be comfortable with us there and that we feel safe. Making the mobile clinics bulletproof is something that uh, we just thought was necessary in the climate that we're in. It's unfortunate that we have to think about that, but that is the world that we live in. So we want to make sure that our staff and patients are safe. And so along with the bulletproofing and making sure that we have strong community partners or we're parking is something that uh, that's kind of why we're pushing back our procedural clinic is trying to find the right place or the right places to be able to, to serve our patients where everybody's safe. In May, the National Abortion Federation released its 2021 statistics on violence and disruption against abortion providers. The statistics showed a significant increase in stalking, blockades, hoax devices and suspicious packages, invasions, and assault and battery. According to a piece by Vera Bergen-Gruen in Time magazine, armed demonstrators and extremist groups like the Proud Boys began gathering much more frequently at abortion-related protests following the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe. This includes gatherings at 27 abortion-related events in just the first week following the overturn, a 160% spike over last year. Since the Dobbs decision, Just the Pill has seen an 83% increase in patient requests for appointments and has doubled their staff to meet this rise in patient demand. They're still working to onboard new staff and clinicians as quickly as possible but trying to do so sustainably. We're in the marathon now. We are not in the sprint anymore, right? This is going to be the lay of the land for a long time. We didn't get her overnight, and we have a long way to go to make it better than it was before. Roe v. Wade was just a skeleton to start with. We need to build it back and make it better than before. So we have a long road ahead of us, so we're just trying to, yeah, keep our head on straight, <laughs> try to see as many patients as possible, and making 
our organization something, the what we're doing in Colorado, how can we replicate that in other states and expand? So that's that's where we are right now. But I, I'd rather be doing this than than anything else. At least we're making some headway. In terms of the future, I really, as much as I'm like, I'm disappointed to know what the trajectory of some folks' lives look like because they're going to fall through the cramps of like all of the support. That's, you know, it's hard to get to a, a lot. Here's Denise Fountain again. As much as I feel saddened by that, I'm still hopeful because there's organizations that are dedicated to doing their work and there's a lot of people that are dedicated to this movement. And I, as much as like laws you know, seem to govern everyone, I really feel like folks get their power from movements. So I'm really just interested in seeing what we can like, what type of base building we can do to fight that. Because I don't think it's something that we can just lay down and say, okay, where well, we don't have autonomy over our bodies, it's fine. It's not fine. That was Janice Fountain from the Yellowhammer Fund. You heard her in the piece, Abortion Access and Reproductive Justice in a Post-Row Landscape, produced by The Response and hosted by Tom Llewellyn. And that does it for today's show. If you'd like more information, visit us at radioproject.org or find us on Twitter or Instagram. And if you have thoughts about today's episode, leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Lucy Kang. Thanks for tuning in to Making Contact.